buried in an unmarked grave. You talk about an unusual and an unexpected way to finish your life, especially when your name is Moses. I mean, here's one of the greatest men who ever lived, and he's buried in an unmarked grave. Deuteronomy 18 tells us there was no other prophet in all of Israel who was his equal until Jesus came along. Led more than two million Israelites out of Egypt. He spent 40 years guiding them safely across the desert so that then they could enter into the promised land. Wrote the first five books of the Bible, and other than Jesus, he performed more miracles than any other person in all of history. What a remarkable man, and what a remarkable life he lived. And yet, when Moses is about to die, God takes him out to a place where nobody can see. And then when Moses dies, God buries him in a place that no one's ever going to be able to find. Buried in an unmarked grave. Now what a contrast that is to what happened in Egypt. You know where the Israelites just came from? I mean, down there in Egypt, when somebody famous dies, you know it. And you're never going to forget it because they, they build these huge monuments. You can still see them to this day. The great pyramids scattered across the desert. To this day, we are still amazed at the elaborate provisions that the Egyptians would make in order to honor the dead and the incredible amount of wealth that is stored in the tombs of the pharaohs. But when the leader of Israel dies, there's no pyramid, no elaborate gravesite to testify to his greatness. There, there's no monument at all. Moses is buried in an un marked grave. Talk about a contrast to the culture around you. And that's exactly how God wanted it to be. God wants his people to be different. God wants his people to stand out from everybody else. God wants his people to have a different understanding of who they are and where they're going. He wants our greatness to be determined and defined by our connection to him. Not by the amount of, a, of applause or the number of accolades that we receive from the world around us. No, it should be God. Not the world that shapes and defines our identity. It should be God, not our world, that shapes and determines our destiny. Well, so it is in the scripture that we're going to study today where Jesus teaches us to turn the other cheek and go the extra mile and, and love your enemies. I mean, even people who've never been inside a church building, they've, they've heard these words. They've heard these sayings of Jesus. And why? Because they stand out. They're so unusual. They're so out of the ordinary. I mean, his words here, they just defy logic. I mean, it just cuts against the grain of who we are. Listen, when somebody strikes me in the face, my first instinct is not just to stand there and smile and turn the other cheek and say, okay, try it again. No, that's not natural. The natural thing for me to do when somebody hits me, the natural thing for me to do is to clench my fist and want to hit them back. What Jesus is asking us to do here is so contrary to the way our world lives and operates that in order to do what he's talking about here, we have to go over and above what comes natural to us. In order to live this way, we have to act in a supernatural way. That's why the key verse in this whole scripture is the last verse. Verse 48, notice what it says. Matthew 5, 48 says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, don't let that word perfect throw you and keep you from understanding what Jesus is really saying here. Jesus is not telling us to become all-knowing and all-powerful like God is because that's not possible. No, the word perfect here literally means to complete, to complete the process. So think of it like this. Let's say you're putting a salad together and you're putting in all these different ingredients and finally at last you put the tomato in and now you think, oh, the salad's perfect. Meaning not that it's flawless, but meaning that now it's got everything in it to give it the flavor it needs so that when I sit down to eat it, it's going to satisfy. It's going to make me feel full and complete. Oh, I, I couldn't ask for anything more. Well, so it is in every one of these situations that Jesus is going to talk about in verses 38 to 48. 
where he talks about these different scenarios. Here's somebody who's insulting you, or here's somebody who's mistreating you, or here's somebody trying to take advantage of you. And in every one of those circumstances, you notice there's something missing there. What's missing? Love. God's love. God is not a part of the picture. So Jesus says, every time something bad happens here, don't respond to the evil with more evil. No, respond to that evil with something good. Bring a taste of heaven to that ugly situation. Let people see what happens when God gets involved. In other words, give other people an opportunity to see what our Heavenly Father is really like because you try to help people even when they're not kind to you. Tom Wright tells about a father that he knew had to leave town for a couple days on a business trip. And he wanted to make sure that while he was away, his children were going to behave. So just before he left town, he pulled his oldest son aside. He was nine years old at the time. He pulled his oldest son aside and he said, listen, son, while I'm gone, you're in charge. So I want you to act like me. You know, just think of what I would normally do around this house if I were here and, and then do it for me. And of course, what the father had in mind when he said those words were, you know, keep the house clean and and keep everything in order and take out the trash and help your mom wash the dishes. That, that's what he was thinking when he said that. Well, a couple of days later, the father comes back from the business trip and he talks to his wife and said, well, how did our son do? His wife said, well, it was kind of strange. I mean, every morning after breakfast, he'd go fix himself a cup of coffee. I didn't know our nine-year-old boy drank coffee. But every morning after breakfast, he'd go fix himself a cup of coffee. Then he'd head to the living room, turn the music up, sit there for 30 minutes and read the newspaper. And then he would scold his sister for not picking up her toys. Act like the father. What does it mean for us to act like our father, our heavenly father? How does he love people? And can we learn to love people in the same way? Watch how Jesus answers those questions. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. That's God's law. It's mentioned three different times in the Old Testament. And yet by the time of Jesus, most people have forgotten why that law was given and how it was supposed to be carried out. See, the reason for this law, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, was not to encourage people to fight back and get even and give me my pound of flesh. No, the reason that law was put in place was the very opposite. It was to reduce violence, restrain evil, make people think twice. Before you try to hurt somebody else, understand you're going to get the same thing in return. And then to make sure that, that law was carried out in the right way, the law wasn't just given to anybody. Okay, make sure you get your eye for an eye and your tooth for a tooth. No, the law was put in the hands of the judges, an impartial third party. Only they were allowed to administer this law. Only they had the right to say how, when, and where the punishment would be delivered. And why? Because when we get hurt, we lose perspective. In our rage to want to make things right, the feelings are so strong, we end up making everything worse. You take out one of my teeth, now I want to take out six of yours. You poke me in the eye, now I want to punch you in the face and break your nose. An angry person always gives more than what they get. It's hard to be fair and impartial when you've got this feeling of revenge. A group of people were asked to participate in an experiment just to try to measure our, you know, how fair and valid is our sense of judgment. So they had everybody sit down at this really long table, and then they paired everybody up. And they asked the people on the one side of the table, now grab that person's hand. The, the person that's sitting across from you, grab their hand. And now apply pressure to one of their fingers. I mean, enough pressure where they're really going to feel it. So the people on this side did that. Then they asked the people on the other side of the table, now you do the same thing to them, but only make sure that you apply the same amount of pressure to them that they gave to you. Well, every single time, the people on this side gave more pain than what they received. Why? Because the pain I feel always seems worse to me than the pain I cause somebody else. 
See, when I'm angry, when I'm hurt, when I'm upset, it's hard to be fair with others. That's why this law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it had to be put in the hands of the judges, an impartial third party. You leave it in my hands? Let me take matters into my own hand. I give more than what I got. And, and instead of the evil coming to an end, now the trouble and the misery just keeps escalating because I gave more than what I got. Now they feel they got to return again and it just keeps going back and forth. And then before you know it, friends and family start to get involved. And then before you know it, you got the Hatfields and McCoys involved in a family feud. Oh, that's not what the law was intended to do. When the law, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, when that law was used in the right way, here's how it would work. Say somebody gets mad at me and they knock out one of my teeth. So now the two of us come to court and the judge says, okay, David, you lost one of your teeth. How do we make things right? Knocking out one of his teeth? No, no. I mean, what am I going to do with this tooth? What good is that going to do me? I don't need a tooth. So the judge is singing to himself, okay, you lost one of your teeth. What was your tooth worth? Okay, you pay him a thousand bushels of wheat. Pay him in that way and everything will be okay. Or you'll poke out somebody's eye and then the judge will tell you, well, you've got to pay that person four bulls, three cows, two lambs, and next year's crop at harvest time. See, keep the law in the hands of the judges and, it, and the law works. Keeps everything fair. It encourages everybody to want to be really careful in their relationships with each other. But 1,500 years later, by the time of Jesus, people have forgotten all about that. They forgot why the law was given and how it was supposed to work. By the time of Jesus, people are reading these words, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, and they're thinking, hey, that's my right. Somebody hurts me, I, God tells me, I got a right to hurt them back. And they were misapplying God's law. So that's why Jesus responds the way he does. Verse 38, he said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But verse 39, Jesus says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus is not telling us to roll over and play dead and just let evil have its way. That would be taking these words out of context. The Bible makes it really clear, Romans chapter 13, God established the role of government. That was his idea. And one of the reasons for that institution, so they could administer justice, so they could protect people. That's why in Romans chapter 13, it says that God put the sword in their hands. He put the sword in the hands of government. Why? So they could punish those who, could do, who do wrong, so they could resist evil. So these words of Jesus that we have here, he's not talking about. He's not saying it's wrong to have armies or police or courts. He's not talking about that. And neither is Jesus saying that we should just be passive and keep our mouth shut when we hear about a child being abused or we see a neighbor being mistreated. Yes, Jesus turned the other cheek when the soldiers struck him in the face. When they did that to him, yeah, he turned the other cheek. But when Jesus saw the religious leaders cheating people out of their money, he grabbed a whip, he turned the tables over, he chased all the animals out of the temple and all the men who were selling those animals in, in illegal ways because they were keeping the people from connecting to God. All those other issues. He's not talking about that here. What Jesus is talking about here is us as individuals in our personal relationships. You know, what's been done to me? And then how am I supposed to respond? He says, do not resist evil. That word resist, when it's written in the passive voice, it means to resist. But I mean, when it's written in the active voice, and here it is, it's written in the active voice. It means do not retaliate. Don't respond in a violent way. Don't return evil for evil because that doesn't help the situation. So then Jesus goes ahead and he says, let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. How does this play out in the real world? Well, let me give you some illustrations of that. We'll just look at one of them this morning. The last part of verse 39. Jesus says, if anyone, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, notice Jesus is talking about a slap, not a punch. 
It's not talking about punching somebody in the mouth. I mean, there were words he could have used as that's what he wanted to talk about, you know, delivering a knockout blow, punching somody into the middle of next week. No, he, he's not talking. He, he's talking about the slap. In other words, he's talking about a person who's trying to deliver an insult. And notice the way the insult's given. And many people in Jesus' day believe the left hand was unclean. I mean, even if you were naturally left-handed, that's fine, that's good. But, but if you were left-handed, you wouldn't use the left hand when you'd eat. And neither would you use the left hand when you were trying to deliver an insult. So when Jesus talks here about a slap on the right face or in the right cheek, he's talking about delivering that blow with the right hand. So how's that going to be done? I mean, trying to hit with the right hand on the right cheek, that's kind of hard to do. If you want to strike that kind of a blow in such a way that they're going to feel it, it's really going to register, you do it with the back of the hand. And in first century Israel, in a Jewish court of law, to, receive, to be hit in that kind of a way, you receive twice the damages as opposed to somebody just punching you in the mouth. Yeah, you punch somebody in the mouth, you're going to be held accountable. But when you strike in this fashion with the back of your hand, it's twice the damages. Because everybody in that day and time understood that was the ultimate insult. See, here we're not talking about somebody trying to do physical harm. No, we're talking about somebody who's trying to publicly disgrace you, shame you in front of other people. Now, other than the few incidents on the playground when I was a little boy, I don't think I've ever been hit in the face like this. But what we're talking about here is somebody insulting you. And boy, being insulted, yeah, I've been insulted a number of times over the course of my life. You have too. And every time it happens, it hurts. And you know the interesting thing about that hurt? The more you think about what that person did to you, the more you replay that incident in your mind, the more you think about what they said to you and how you wish you would have replied to them, the deeper the wound goes. See, fretting and fuming over that insult. How could they do that to me? Fretting and fuming, it, it never helps. It never does any good. It never makes you feel better. It never resolves the problem. It never makes the pain go away. In fact, it's just the opposite. The more you hold on to that and the more you think about how can I even the score, the worse the pain gets. The insult just keeps on hurting. That's why the words of Jesus here are so important. Hey, Release it. Let's find a way to put this to rest. Rather than to keep the evil going, let's find a way to bring that evil to an end. A number of years ago, when Tiger Woods won the Masters Tournament, Fuzzy Zeller responded in a very unkind way. He made some racist remarks. He intended his words to be funny, but they weren't. They were mean-spirited. And a number of people criticized him for his comments, and they were right to do so. But what was most interesting about that episode was how Tiger Woods responded. One day he was talking with the reporters, and the reporters asked him about, hey, what do you think about Fuzzy Zeller and what he said about you? And all Tiger said was this, hey, we all make mistakes. It's time to move on. That was it. Didn't feed the fire and keep the controversy going. Didn't respond to the hate with more hate, though the media would have loved that. He refused to retaliate. Yeah, yeah, I know. Tiger's got his issues. I get that. But on that particular occasion, he was responding the way that Jesus is teaching here. Don't waste all your energy thinking how you can even the score. Don't respond to evil with more evil because it only escalates things. It doesn't make things better. It just makes things worse. No, Jesus says when something like this happens, here's a wonderful opportunity to show our world what our Father is like. So that's why it says down here in verse 44, he says, love your enemies. How? Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who hate you. So that, verse 45, so that you may be children. See, now people are going to begin to recognize, well, why are you so different from everybody? You know, nobody else handles this situation that way. Why are you acting this way? Oh, I get it. It's your connection to God. You're a child of the Father in heaven. 
How does our Father treat people? Can you tell? Oh, yeah. You know, you're driving down the road. Can you tell which fields of corn, which field of beans belong to the Christian farmers and which belong to those who don't believe? Oh, yeah. Christian farmers always have the tall corn and the healthy beans and, and the, the non-believers, their crops are always dry and shriveled. No, no, it doesn't work like that at all. That's why Jesus says the last part of verse 45, when God makes it rain, he lets the rain fall on believers and blasphemers alike. When God makes his sun to shine, the atheist gets just as warm as the Christian does. See, God's good to everybody, enemies and friends alike. We should be too. I want to tell you something, that's hard. It's hard to be good to somebody who's trying to push your buttons. Listen to how John Ortberg puts it. Picture this scene in your mind. Mom is in a grocery store. She's in a hurry. So many things that have to get done on this day, so she's feeling the pressure. She's tense. There in the grocery store, she has her three-year-old walking next to her, and her 18-month-old child is now standing in the shopping cart. Suddenly, the three-year-old grabs a box of Cocoa puffs, that's not good. Put it down, says mom, but the three-year-old acts like he didn't hear. Put it down, she repeats, but the three-year-old is not cooperating. Well, while this battle is going on, unbeknownst to mom, her 18-month-old child there in the shopping cart has grabbed a jar of jelly off the shelf, and like a ball, he just tosses it on the floor, and the glass shatters everywhere. What happens next is not pretty. Mom goes ballistic. She picks up her three-year-old, drapes him over her arm, one of her arms, carrying him around like a doubled-over pretzel. And then with the other hand, she starts shaking the shopping cart to get her 18-month-old to wake up and behave. Her three-year-old is yelling as she races down the aisle. Put me down, put me down, he screams. But now mom is the one who's not listening. Because you see, she is suffering from what brain surgeons call cognitive incapacitation, meaning rational thought is no longer an option. <laughs> I love that. Been there, done that, right? Listen, when others are being mean to you, it's easy to experience that cognitive incapacitation. When others are being mean to you, how in the world can you be rational and reasonable with them? How do you help people who are hurting you? How can you be kind to people who are never nice? How do you love your enemies? See, what Jesus is asking here is not natural, it's supernatural. And it's only as we allow the Heavenly Father to work through us, it's only by His grace and His power that we can love others in this way. Now, how does that happen? I think Jesus gave the answer in John chapter 15. You remember when Jesus talked about abiding in him and allowing him to abide in us? And then he used this picture of the tree and its branches. He says, it's only as a branch is attached to the vine, only then can the branch bear fruit. It's the attachment, it's the connection that makes the fruit possible. So think of it like this. Think of a husband and wife. How does a husband and wife produce fruit, produce a child? How does that come about? By concentrating on the fruit? No, it comes about... When the husband and wife enter into the most private, the most intimate, the most sacred of bonding that is possible between two human beings. And in that moment, a new life is conceived. But here's what's interesting. At the moment that new life is conceived, the husband and wife, they're not thinking about the mechanics of making a child. No, in that moment, they're only thinking about each other. This moment is a moment of joy, profound joy, absolute rapture. I mean, they're just totally lost in their love for each other. But out of that blissful moment comes a new life. The fruit comes because of their love for each other. 
And what's true of physical fruit is also true of spiritual fruit. You can't just grit your teeth and say, I need to be more patient, or I need to be more kind and thoughtful, or I need to have more self-control in my life, and just think because of that effort and determination, now suddenly there's going to be a new character developed within you. It doesn't happen that way. The fruit comes as a result of something else. Your life, your union, your connection with God. As daily you engage in a loving encounter with the Lord, out of that fellowship comes a new attitude and a new outlook and a new perspective on others. Out of that life and fellowship with God comes a new love and a new sense of appreciation. 